Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. I mean, my, the way I always speak about it is people are like, why would you give a drug addict drugs? Right. I'm like, they're already taking drugs. <laughs> they're, they're already taking drugs, first of all. And the majority of people who come through treatment are going to utilize, I mean, I would say 80% of people that you see in residential treatment, pursuing addiction recovery, are going to utilize medications, and they're going to be taking substances. Today I'm speaking with Craig Salerno, but before we get to that, a little housekeeping. My conversation with Craig begins at about the seven and a half minute mark. I want to continue to share messages from our listeners and viewers of this podcast. So I got this message from Braxton in Colorado. He wrote, I friggin', except he didn't say friggin', love Daniel. I'm glad you asked about the body being better or not in terms of our meditation practice. So he's talking about Daniel Ingram. That was the last episode. Um, And he said this in relation to the somatic sensations of our body. And I asked Daniel, is it better to meditate on the body versus other potential objects of meditation? And I thought Daniel did a great job answering that. Basically that any of our sense stories can be taken as the focus of our meditation and we can progress in that way. Um, But I thought more about this and that's partly why I wanted to share this message from Braxton is um, I've seen many teachers, especially Americans or Western meditation teachers, really emphasize the body. And this is partly a very valid critique of our culture, that it's, quote, too heady, that we've gotten too intellectual, that we tend to be disconnected or disembodied, and how important it is to connect, to re-embody ourselves, to come back to the felt somatic experience of being an embodied being. You know, it's a, it's a important part of who we are. Um, but I've also seen a kind of shadow side of this. Um, for example, if a teacher gets asked a question or someone raises a concern, and instead of answering that question or addressing that concern, the teacher you know, redirects the student back to their body, um, says something about them being too heady or thinking too much. And you know, in the worst case scenario, I think that is manipulative. You know, in a kind of cult-like situation, it could be a way of evading or avoiding answering a genuine concern. I've come to the conclusion in my own understanding that it's really important to integrate all the different parts of ourselves, all the different facets of our being, to not over or under emphasize any one of them. Um, in terms of the Buddhist tradition, we have the famous saying from the Buddha, uh, which goes something like, as the wise test gold by burning, cutting, or rubbing it, so you should accept my words only after examining them and not out of just respect or devotion for me. So the Buddha said that in the Jhana Sara Samuchaya Sutra, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So I've come to feel skeptical of any teacher that is actively discouraging their students from thinking through and contemplating what it is they're teaching. And it is at least a little ironic that we would have that uh, in a Buddhist context because it's such a core part of the Buddhist traditions to refine our conceptual understanding and for our conceptual understanding to aid and be a part of our path of meditation. So I just wanted to share a few thoughts about that here. And now for today's episode, I'm speaking with Craig Salerno. He is a therapist living here in Boulder, Colorado. He specializes in psychedelic assisted therapy, specifically ketamine. And he has an extensive background working with addictions, among other issues. He was featured in Goop, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's magazine on health and wellness. 
Uh, he's worked in the ayahuasca tradition, the Shipipo people in Peru at the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. So this was a great conversation, and please see the show notes for a breakdown of all the topics we cover. That's something that I plan to do moving forward, so you can see what we talk about and you can skip ahead the parts that you're interested in. They will always go in chronological order. They may not always have the exact time that we get to something, just because of the time that would take me to do. Um, and then I just want to give a little bit of perspective here. The problem of addictions in particular in the United States is just absolutely massive, and I was doing a little bit of research for this episode. It's something that I did a my thesis on when I went to graduate school. Um, we look at organizations like the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics. We find things like in 2018, 20.3 million people in the United States met clinical criteria for substance use disorder. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And then out of that, something around 2.5 million actually went to a specialized addiction treatment facility. Um, in any case, many people who meet the clinical criteria, cr- clinical criteria are not getting help, not getting professional help with um, substance use issues. And as I share in this conversation, I worked for over a year in a national addiction center, and it's tough work. And my heart really goes out to everyone going through addiction issues, going through recovery. Uh, it can be a really difficult process. And I've just come to an understanding that I think we need to develop new ways of helping people here, that a lot of our existing modalities and ways of conceptualizing this, of treating people, of talking about it, they're not working. And so I I saw firsthand how heartbreaking it can be. For example, imagine spending like the typical rehab center will cost something like $30,000, $45,000 even, or more. Some of them are, are more than that. And you're there for 30 days or 45 days, or, you know, sometimes 60 or 90 days. And to have that massive of an investment in time and money and time away from your family, and then to relapse um, after all that. And I I saw that, and uh, it's just, it's really difficult to see. And um, so I think we need, yeah, we need new ways of of working with this. And um, I think our national conversation on these topics is evolving in a good direction. The war on drugs has been an absolute failure, in my opinion, and the opinions of many people. Um, It's led to massive incarceration. Uh, which has disproportionately affected minorities, especially black people in this country. And so, and that was a large part of the BLM protests last summer, and which are actually still going on. So in this conversation with Craig, we don't really get into the politics, but we do focus on therapy and how psychedelics such as ketamine offer new and exciting ways of working with things like addiction, as well as treatment-resistant depression and other issues. And so without further ado, I bring you Craig Salerno. Today with Craig Salerno. Craig, thanks for being on the podcast. Hello, hello. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, good to have you. And you are working as a therapist in Colorado here. Mm-hmm. And you're just telling me you also teach at Naropa University. Yeah, so. yeah. I have my hand in a couple different things. The majority great. of my work is private practice psychotherapy, working with ketamine, and then also doing addiction therapy and adolescent therapy. 
but yeah, also teaching group psychotherapy at Naropa. <clears throat> yeah, I've been in the field since I was 21, so I graduated undergraduate at Colorado State studying psychology and focusing on addiction counseling. And I jumped like immediately into an internship my the latter part of my junior year of college and was working in residential treatment with adolescent boys. Yeah, I think I was just 21. So I've been in the field for quite a bit of time. I'm 34 now, so. Yeah. Yeah, quite a bit of time in the addiction field That's specifically good. and then just like a range of different client work um, hmm. over the course of those years. What, what drew you to jump into that? That's an early age to get into this field. Yeah, I mean, I always feel like I had somewhat of a general sense and calling that I was meant to be a therapist. Hmm. Um, it's actually related a bit to the psychedelic work too, which we'll probably get into talking about that more. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had this like deep calling to be of service. I feel like the dynamic of being a therapist was always really interesting to me. And as with like any therapist archetype, <clears throat> a lot of people would always come to me for support. And I really see so you were someone that people would naturally like ask advice of. Or, yeah, I think it's because yeah. I was naturally curious about humans and the mind and emotions. And, mm. you know, I always think too, I'm like <clears throat> the family I grew up in, I think was like a little bit less likely to talk about emotions. So I found mm. myself extra curious to hear more about people and to learn more about emotional experiences. Um, so yeah, just naturally drew in that direction and then just had like yeah. a very nice mentor when I was at Colorado state, Randy Swain, he was a addiction focused guy and he, yeah, invited me into his course doing addiction counseling and it's just pew, like all the light bulbs turned on. I was like, this is what I want to do. Oh wow. So yeah, a little bit of like intrinsic interest and then people That's that cool were pointing in the direction and yeah. yeah. A lot of people I talk to in this field that like they have a calling, you know, mm -hmm. it feels like yeah. how, what they're meant to be doing. Agreed. Yeah. I felt like I felt it in the beginning and then it's just become more alive and more focused over the course of the, mm. as I do the work, the calling gets more clear and precise. Yeah. Nice. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you got inspired with working with addictions at such a young age. That's mm -hmm. also kind of unusual because that's the age when most people are getting addicted. Partying and yeah, getting addicted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that was, I mean, that's, I've been fascinated by just drugs and alcohol and the impact on the brain since I was mm -hmm. young and used, you know, marijuana and psychedelics at a fairly young age, 15, 16, 17, and just got like really intrigued and interested in substances. And I feel mm -hmm. like the addiction field at that time when I was 21 was like the entrance of like learning more about substances. So yeah, I'm like, mm. I just kind of hopped myself in and learned <laughs> as I went, yeah, what addiction was and how to work with it. And yeah, got, yeah. Hum got humbled pretty quickly too with that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a tough, tough field. It's a really tough field. It's a tough yeah. thing to, to be able to work with. Um, and you mentioned psychedelics already. I mean, that's a lot, of, there's so much excitement and energy around that and kind of has a sense of like, it's the new cool thing and psychology. Mm -hmm. Not that it's even that new. Mm -hmm. really but um feels new like there's a psychedelic renaissance happening totally but then in the field of addictions i mean that's such a interesting territory because traditionally like that would be another substance that someone who's recovering from addiction should avoid like yeah do you want to speak to that a little bit totally i mean my the way i always speak about it is people are like why would you give a drug addict drugs right I'm like they're already taking drugs <laughs> they're, they're already taking drugs first of all and the majority of people who come through treatment are going to utilize, I mean, I would say 80% of people that you see in residential treatment, pursuing addiction recovery, are going to utilize medications and they're going to be taking substances. Hmm. Um, so the notion of psychedelic therapy. But that's a good point. Yeah. A lot of people in addiction recovery are taking 
what is it? Things like gabapentin. Yeah, and even I mean medication, medication assisted therapy. Yeah, Suboxone yeah. and other things. And I think people forget these are all mind altering substances. Right. Psychedelics just have like a particular taboo, but to me, the cool thing about them is in addiction, we're using substances to kind of get away and to move out. Hmm. Psychedelic therapy, we're using substances to go in and to Hmm. become inquisitive. And I'm like, to me, we're kind of like flipping addiction on its head. Right. And they often say, well, the the medicine can sometimes be in the poison. Hmm. And there's this notion of working with substances to move through a substance addiction. It just, you know, it has an interesting irony and paradox to it. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. It's, it reminds me of like like Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism mm. or whatever, Tantra in general, where you the poison, the medicine isn't poison, like we yeah, said. Yeah. Yeah. Like going into something can sometimes be better than running away from it. Totally. But it's tricky territory, like you, you said. Yeah, it's really tricky. And you, yeah, I mean, I've been really <clears throat> interested with how many people are open to it, but I think the immediate impulse when you talk about utilizing ketamine for addiction recovery, most people are like, wait a second, that feels not right or something about that feels off and it takes a bit of time hmm. discussing how we use these medicines before people say like oh that actually makes sense to utilize a substance to go inward to like reframe the relationship of like yeah instead of using a substance to check out you use it to check in i'm like there's a really dynamic interplay happening that makes it really an effective treatment yeah and it's in the context obviously of therapy totally. of yeah. looking at yourself and and you're with someone in that situation yeah you're not out on your own or in a party situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would never advocate they like go and buy ketamine on the street and try to use it. I'm like, yeah, there's <laughs> something about coming into an office, working with a trained professional. and Yeah. Yeah. When I saw you um, give a talk with the NOAC Society a few months ago, I guess it was last summer, and um, the NOAC Society is like, um, I guess I don't know that much about it, but they're helping raise awareness around psychedelics and psychedelic therapy. And um, I asked you a question and I really appreciated your answer. And it was like around, how do you know if you have an addiction issue with the substance mm-hmm. and um yeah do you want to speak to that again i'm curious what i said <laughs> yeah maybe we you said that. you basically said um just through sitting with someone and being with them and asking like penetrating questions and, and being really honest with them you can tell like you can yeah. smell it in the air yeah, yeah but it's it's uh it's a tricky thing because it's with addiction there can be so much um justification or covering up or, or, you know, not looking at the consequences. Absolutely. But I'm like, that's the stuff that I think you feel into. I mean, one of my favorite questions to ask a client that I'm sitting with, if they're coming for psychedelic integration, I'm getting a sense of like, is this addictive use or is this healthy use? You just ask them, like, tell me about the relationship you have with the substances. Mm. Tell me the relationship you have with marijuana or with the opiate or whatever it is. And you will feel in the way people talk about the relationship, whether or not it feels healthy or whether it feels codependent or traumatic or Mm. and to me that's the thing as an addiction professional you hone your instincts and that's when you said like smell it yeah there's certain cues with the way the relationship gets deranged and difficult that you can start to feel out so as i explore your relationship to psychedelics or your relationship to a substance i mean you can more or less feel you can some of the addictive components which is usually like compulsivity hiding using it to avoid and get away from things, right. having a sense of like shame attached to it. I'm like, usually we're, we're maneuvering mm-hmm. in the addictive realm when we start to feel those things. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. I think it's a complex um, subject. And it, like one of the values of a therapist could be someone who could see things about you or help you see things about yourself that you might not be seeing your, on your own. Totally. Otherwise, what's the point of going and spending all this time and money to see 
a professional in that way. Yeah, and like opening up mm. the periphery. Yeah. And particularly with addiction, I'm like the other thing, people get very stuck and narrow-minded and mm. lose track of the outer periphery. And I'm like, that's where I think addiction therapy is super helpful of like widening the breadth of what you're able to see in your mm. addictive use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just I appreciate the the complexity of it. I, I think the old school AA model addictions work is very black and white, and it's you know either or, and you're either sober or you're not, mm-hmm. and we should all be sober. And so moving into this territory of more nuanced, complex understanding, um, where there's not like a simple answer, mm-hmm. um, to me is like very alive. It feels more true. It feels more honest, and it also feels more tricky and difficult to talk about. And maybe less clear. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. Like there's something really supportive and helpful about black and white, which is that it doesn't give you the pain and anxiety of nuance. Mm. So being able to just choose, I'm going to be sober today. I'm going to do the 12 step model. I'm an addict. And that compression can actually be really helpful because it just pushes away and averts things that might otherwise create a lot of anxiety and tension. But yeah. I think as people pursue through a recovery path, they maybe can feel more nuance. Mm. And I want to give a shout out to Kevin Franciotti. I feel like that's yeah. his last name, Italian last name. <clears throat> but he has a group called Psychedelics in Recovery, and they're building beautifully. And they're integrating this notion of like, can we be strict to the 12 steps, do that work and appreciate the tradition of the 12 step while also integrating this idea that people are utilizing psychedelics in the way that I'm mentioning medicinally to go inward and to deepen the recovery process. And mm. can we hold that nuance that that's actually possible? And that doesn't mean you're a bad person or right, that you're right. doing something wrong. That you just solved the wagon. And yeah. That you're using something different to deepen your work. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like eventually like doing this work to eventually get to a mature place to be able to make decisions that choice mm-hmm. because a big part of addiction is compulsion. Totally. Right? Yeah. 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 I talked to, um, I mean, I worked for a year, at an addiction center, and there was definitely a lot of, um, there's a sense of it almost like being like a puritanical religion. Like mm. you've left your addiction and you've entered AA, yeah, yeah. and you're either in it or you're out of it, and um, this kind of heaviness of the kind of sin of it, and having to identify as a alcoholic or whatever it is for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be helpful. Um, like you were saying, I mean, I think in my ideal world, that would be uh, like step on the path. Like you could mm-hmm. like really do that for a few years and then come to a new place where your sense of identity can expand beyond that. Mm-hmm. And you can enjoy life without seeing it through the lens of, Oh, I'm an addict all the time. Totally, like to me, yeah. that would be healing. Then you would have healed that addiction problem. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. He like had the self-actualization and then beyond that is like self-transcendence, which is like moving beyond the identities we get stuck in. Yeah. And to me, that's, I've seen people who push against the 12 step model want to transcend the identity of being an addict, which for some people, like you're saying early in recovery, that's a really dangerous thing to do. Mm. And your addiction will like take advantage of you and tell you like, okay, you did six months of sobriety. You could probably Mm. use effectively. So I get why like keeping that at bay is intelligent because right. a lot of people relapse at six months. They think they're fine. They're like, okay, I could probably use a psychedelic or data. And they're before you know it, they're like deep in their addiction, which is like a tragedy. Yeah. So the so, six month mark is an important one, maybe. Yeah. And a year mark in two years. I mean, it's right. to me, it's so different. And I don't know, I have a lot of respect and appreciation of the 12 step model. And I've seen people that have dedicated their lives to that path of healing mm. and it's worked and it's effective and to do anything different doesn't make sense. However, there's a subset of other people that do it, feel the compressed identity and have a yearning for transcending out of it. Those are the ones that I get really curious about 
supporting and yeah beautiful yeah and it, it could be um actually healthy growth mm-hmm. in themselves it's ironic or interesting that the wait the founder of aa right did lsd mm-hmm. and had a really profound religious okay. spiritual experience and wanted to share it in all the AA meetings across America. Yeah, yeah. And then the other people in AA were like, hey, this isn't a good idea. Do you know about that? Do you want yeah, to speak to that? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that Bill's had his Bill, ex- right? Yeah, yeah, had his experience with LSD. And then I know also with Belladonna early in his recovery process. So psychedelics have been infused <laughs> in that culture. I get it. A though. lot of like, people don't know that. Yeah. Well I think it's I think it's passing around more, like you said, the psychedelic renaissance. I think mm. these stories of how psychedelics have been in our culture and maybe subverted mm. are starting to like come out and yeah, twelve step tradition is no different. It's it's been in there. Um, but I get I'm like this is a good thing to talk about is psychedelics are dangerous. Mm. They're not all it's not all beneficial. Right. There's risks right. to including it in therapy. There's risks to including it in your lifestyle. And right. to me, it's good to be mindful of that, but also not to shut it completely out. There's a, there's a middle ground here. Yeah. yeah the middle ground, the middle way. I love that. I think, mm-hmm. I think that there is danger there and that's why the stick, you know, the stigma around them has been there for a reason. And there's actually danger in something like meditation practice too, mm-hmm. or yoga practice or pretty much anything that human beings can do yeah, and get yeah. really obsessed about. Um, holds danger i mean even eating you know eating a meal could be dangerous if it had food poisoning or whatever mm-hmm. or you're eating the wrong food a lot but um and i think that's something that's going to be on the next podcast episode just to give a little uh, preview of that like talking about some of the dangers of meditation mm. because similar to the way that some people are out there advocating for psychedelics and this will heal the world and we can have peace on earth now if everyone, you know, if Donald Trump just took mushrooms, you know, mm, yeah, <laughs> everything yeah. would be fixed. And I've seen those memes. This kind of, <laughs> you know, it's funny and, and maybe there's some truth to it, but there's also a dark side to it. And um, the same is true with like mindfulness and meditation. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, good to like, like name that and be honest about it. Totally. Yeah. I feel yeah. like that's where we get stuck. Those of us that are advocates for mindfulness or I mean, anything psychedelics, I feel like we forget on our end, the nuance, like, you know, the 12 step model has its tight thing where it struggles with nuance but us that appreciate and respect them maybe get stuck with this idea of like they're mm. all all good all healing all beneficial if everyone did yoga and meditation and it's just not true it's just it's, not true right yeah there's no one size fits all for humanity and totally yeah and i feel like that's um, what we're actually talking about and i appreciate you saying that like the nuance and the middle ground for all of the practices yeah for psychedelic therapy <clears throat> meditation for yoga i'm like it's that's why i think working with a therapist is so helpful is you can figure out what actually works for the individual and you could tailor it individually because right. different things work for different people. Right. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Tailor it. And then there's this process of having that I've discovered of like, you have to check in, like you have to see what's working and make adjustments and not, you know, it's not one size fits all for humanity. It's not one size fits all for any one life either. Mm-hmm. Like things change every time and people change. And, um, but it's, it's fascinating to think about this history with LSD, with psychedelics mm. And AA is like one snippet of that, but this like over, like when I look at it, the kind of overall arc of the history is like in the sixties was this explosion of enthusiasm and people like Timothy Leary traveling around and Mm -hmm. trying to give them to everyone. And then this massive reaction against that and Mm -hmm. the shutting down and the stigma and these are terrible things and no one should do them because you'll go insane. And now I think as a culture, we are, I hope, approaching this more middle way approach. Totally. They're positives. There's also danger. Mm -hmm. They can be used in a good way. Um, And they're not the like, I guess what I've come to is like, you know, they're not going to solve all their problems there. No matter how amazing your experience you might have on them, then there's, what is that saying? Like after Zen, the laundry. 
<laughs> there's yeah, always yeah. like you wake up the next day like you have to you come back home you no come back home. Yeah, yeah wherever you go you're coming back home yeah well that's i think that's a nice thing to get to confront with clients too because i think some part of how the media advertises psychedelic therapy is like 30 years of therapy in one day and you know like <laughs> you can radically move through so much and this person did psychedelic therapy once and now they've healed everything, which it's happened. It happens. And mm. is that the consistent thing I see as a psychedelic therapist? No, that would be an exception. right? Yeah. What I actually yeah. see is like people have deep, powerful experiences and then they come back to the difficulties of their day to day. And the mm. real work is like the integrating of the experience. Mm. And it's, it can be a grind and it can be work. Totally. And you go and you retrieve these resources that otherwise sometimes don't feel available. That's why mm. the psychedelics are helpful. But then you come back and the work, the work is still there for you and you're still accountable to putting in work. And that to me, I'm like, I get excited about that part. I'm like, that's to me, that's <laughs> the deep part of the psychedelic therapy is the integration of like, what do we do with these yeah. powerful experiences and make them impactful over years. Absolutely. How would you, um, like, can you say more about integration? Like how would you approach that with someone? Sure. Yeah. The whole notion to me is like <clears throat> psychedelics show us what's possible they expose us to parts of ourselves that have been pushed away, locked up, subverted, dissipated. They show us felt sense and experiences that maybe we haven't been able to access. For example, mm -hmm. if someone's struggling with treatment-resistant depression, they felt really flat, misaligned, apathetic. They have a psychedelic experience where they feel openness, spiritual curiosities. They feel energy. They feel self-love. The integration process is like, how do we, now that the body and the mind and the spirit knows that that's accessible, how do we bring it into the day-to-day -day and like integrate that in a day-to-day -day way? Mm. So integration is just, it's almost like mining. We like go in, mm. we find the gems, we do the work, and then we like bring it out and try to find a way to utilize it mm. back Very in the world, yeah. you know, outside of the mining den. I've never <laughs> used that analogy before, but... Oh, really? Yeah. Kind that's of a works. good one. Yeah. Or going off into space on a spaceship maybe and bringing something back. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like you get exposure and access to something and then you come back and how can we integrate yeah. it in? Yeah. And you might be integrating a, a difficult experience, right? It might be something that really rocked your boat that mm -hmm. throws you off for a while. Absolutely. I think yeah. those kinds of... Uh, it's good to know that ahead of time, like, like we were just saying. And I think as much as I love it, like Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, mm -hmm such a great book, but it'd be easy to pick it up and kind of glance through it and be like, Oh, all I need to do is do mushrooms with a therapist and yeah, heal forever. Yeah. Like, like exactly what you were just saying. So to just move to like put more of a warning out there and, um, and that there's this range of experiences that could happen and mm -hmm. that on that range, like some people really don't have that much of an experience. Mm -hmm. And then some people who have such a big experience, like it's hard to understand that. Like how could someone take that substance and not, be changed for everybody. Yeah. But that's yeah. possible too. Yeah. So many yeah. different <laughs> possibilities. I'm just thinking in the ketamine space, some people witness their ancestors building them pottery, oh, you wow. know, which is like a deep, oh, and then some people just feel like, oh yeah, I feel, I feel calm and at ease. Hmm. You know, I'm like, there's so many variants. Too, right? yeah. Yeah. And some people have memory recall from childhood that are hmm. really challenging. And it's just such a wide array of what arises. And the thing I love about the tradition I was taught in, which is like, you trust the inner healing intelligence and whatever arises is exactly what's needed medicinally. So mm -hmm. you learn to just trust the process. Even if you get a small flat experience, that's mm -hmm. something we work with. If you get a big cosmic experience, we work with that and you yeah. just learn this attitude and it's similar to meditation. Like whatever you find, you work with, mm -hmm. you know, if you find yeah. anxiety and restlessness, you work with it. If you find joy and openness, you work with it. And mm. you just develop a relationship to whatever arises.
Yeah. And then, so are you, you're mostly working with ketamine, is that right? Yeah, ketamine is, yeah. The only legal medicine we can work with as therapists right now is ketamine. And if you're working with MDMA, psilocybin, et cetera, they're usually in clinical trials, which I'm right. not doing any of that work at the moment. Well, another one would be cannabis, right? Yeah, it's true. That. Yeah. I haven't done any cannabis sessions, but yeah. yeah, some of the providers in the center I work with, Boulder Wellness Ketamine Collective, also do cannabis-assisted therapy. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and how long would a ketamine session be, usually? In terms of like a single experience? Yeah. We schedule two and a half to three hours. Okay. Yeah. That's the nice thing about working with ketamine as well in comparison to like the big hitters that keep you in for four to eight hours. Right. Ketamine is like very predictably up and down, usually in around two hours. So we usually give 30 minutes to an hour for prep and a little bit of debriefing integration on the back end, but pretty predictable wave of experience. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I guess it, so it sounds more predictable maybe than some other substances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What? I mean, it's, ketamine is not a substance I have personal experience with really. And I was, it had like a bad reputation <laughs> or stigma in my mind before Same. learning about its uses with therapy. So do you want to? Speak to that. Like, how did it come to be yeah. used in this way? Do you know much about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think most people know the K-hole <laughs> horse tranquilizer. Horse tranquilizer. That's yeah, how that's I agree like, about it. Yeah, the classic way we've associated like when I, with it. When I was in high school, the kids that were doing ketamine were not, they were kind of, you know, also doing cocaine and all this other stuff. So yeah, it's like more illicit. It has yeah, like, it, yeah. generally, I think it brings up this idea of like illicit drug. Um, the curiosity and the, the funny thing about it, ketamine, when you actually explore how it's used medically, it's like one of the most consistently used um, anesthetics. Oh, really? Particularly for children because it's so gentle and because mm -hmm. the body, it's, the body knows how to work with it in a very easy way. It's absorbed in the liver. And I mean, it's just a low, generally low risk medicine and it doesn't mm -hmm. have a lot of negative impact or contraindications. So it's used as an anesthetic, often used in surgeries with children and things like that. So it sounds very safe. Yeah, very safe. It's been used, I think, since the 40s or 50s. It's been in medical use for a long time. And I think the way we found out it was a psychedelic was people would come out of these experiences where they were using ketamine to reduce pain or to help put someone under. And people would say, like, I had, like, a really intense visual experience. And, like, whoa, it was mm. spiritual and it was this. And there was imagery and there was, like, a lot of interesting things happening. And then also people started reporting that their mood would change. I feel like way lighter. I feel way yeah, better. So they started to learn like, wow, there's an antidepressant quality. There's a psychedelic quality. Huh. And then people began using as a, as a psychedelic medicine and bringing the dose range down. So not putting people out. Obviously, we don't want people to be anesthetized. But finding that range where it's mm. psychedelic in nature, you'll get some visual experience. You get the antidepressant quality. Really? So that, then, that middle ground again. Yeah. If you go too far out, you might not remember anything. Is that part of it? Yeah. If you if you dose someone too high, they'll they can come back and say like a lot happened. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> that's when you know you <laughs> went too far. You find the sweet spot, and that's again working. So as psychotherapists, we work with a medical team that gets really into the dosing, and they they mm. figure it out. So yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think uh, memory is fascinating. You know how we the idea that like we could consciously experience things and then have no conscious memory of it. To me, that's just such a weird, fascinating thing to think about. It is so curious. When we get into the realm of psychedelics, it's like, like you just said, like a lot could happen. And then you, what you come back and can remember and talk about later might only be 5% or yeah, whatever. Totally. I think, um, yeah, I've worked in the ayahuasca tradition and there was one of the group leaders that I talked to of like, sometimes you're privy to what the medicine does with you. And sometimes you're not. <laughs> so sometimes you get to witness it and see and be a part of it. And sometimes you'll get out of the experience and be like, I'm not really sure what happened. Hmm. And his notion was like, yes, maybe you just didn't need to get privy to 
what happened. And can you lean into the idea of like trusting that you got what was needed? Trust that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what kind of things would people, would you recommend like ketamine be used for? I mean, the one area that the most research is done for is treatment resistant depression. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone who's tried SSRIs, you've done individual therapy, you tried group therapy and you don't feel like the depression is moving, um, particularly like the higher dose intramuscular dosing of ketamine has been shown to be very effective with like shifting out of depressive states. Yeah. Have you seen that in your own work? Totally. Yeah, yeah. So what, why is that? What, what about it? I mean, my feeling with it is if you can imagine like the density of depression and we're shut down and we're like really in these habitual loops and feeling stuck and static, ketamine is like a very cosmic opening spacious medicine. Mm. So you imagine like going from that felt sense that like nothing can change. I'm stuck. I'm in a rut. I'm in the mud. And then to have like this blast off opening Hmm. it just like reminds you like the depression isn't the only thing available nice and yeah. like other things are open and available and you experience something different for a period of time yeah and the way we use it i mean particularly with treatment resistant depression we'll do six sessions in three weeks so two oh, a week that's and, a lot yeah like increase the dose and you are really like i feel like opening a flower <clears throat> or like the lotus flower emerging from the mud mm, beautiful that's really how i see it with the depression is there is there a component of it of feeling bliss or pleasure yeah, sometimes. Yeah, just like re- relief and yeah. shifting and changing and joy and openness and spaciousness. <laughs> Those are a lot of the words that come in. Okay, yeah. I, just, I feel like our culture has a funny relationship with pleasure. Like mm. We have this puritanical history and lineage and anything that brings joy or pleasure is suspect yeah. in some sense. And some people go to the extreme of like hedonism mm-hmm. and some people are the extreme of like kind of denying that or not, you know, so it's yeah. judging it. Totally. Um, so in therapy to like open up to the feeling of like feel good, feel pleasure, like that can be such progress, such such an amazing shift. Agreed. To like yeah. allow that in. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. to get, you know, be able to allow that in without substances, right? To just find that in your life. And like so many people seem like they're going through life and that's not a normal part of their reality. Yeah. It's a yeah. shame. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. A lot of people run into the barrier of like, am I allowed to feel okay? Right. Or like, okay, that was a big experience, but it was with a substance. Is that okay? Or does that mean it was it real? Right. Yeah. I'm like all these barriers. Yeah. Am I allowed to feel okay? Or like your self identity? Like that's not me. That's not who I am. In -hmm. some sense, there's some belief or sense of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's fascinating to hear about. What is ketamine? It's like a disassociative, right? Is that that accurate? Dissociative anesthetic. Yeah. But it's curious too, dissociation meaning like it just alters you from your basic conscious reality. Mm. So you're like dissociated from that experience. And if you take the medicine to its furthest thing, it's anesthetizing. So you'll actually like leave your body and your consciousness will be (laughs) moving around elsewhere. But most of the dosing we do when we work with lozenges, which is one style of dosing like oral, you're in the room, quote unquote. So you're aware of the therapist with you. Mm. You'll feel like you're in an altered state. They call it somewhat trance style. Mm. Things will be happening visually, somatically, but you, you can stay in relationship with the therapist. And then when we dose intramuscularly, that's when we actually like move more towards the dissociation. And people will report like forgetting the therapist was in the room and they're like in a much more deeply visual experience and mm. tends to be where people have a lot more spiritual insight, spiritual experience. Interesting. So some sense of like the consciousness maybe leaving the physical body. That's amazing to think about. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to think about disassociation in this context as not something negative. Mm-hmm. That if you're suffering from, for example, depression, like you're talking about, to be able to leave that for a period of time mm. is a good thing. Yeah. But a lot of times in 
therapy and especially meditation, it's like stay in your body, stay with it, don't try to leave. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think about maybe at some points in time, it's good to actually let yourself leave. (laughs) Yeah, totally. not always have to stay in the shit or whatever it is. Yeah, well, that's, I'm like, that's why I think this medicine's really powerful for depression is like you have permission and availability to get out of what feels like Mm. a never ending stuck Mm. looping cycle. And then I feel the same way with why I love bringing this medicine to addiction if you talk to anyone who's in active addiction, it mm. is a hellhole of compulsive looping Brain. and repetition and just to feel, thinking. yeah, to feel some liberation from that and some notion of like, oh my goodness, there is availability outside of this right. compulsive loop and pain. I'm like that alone is, it provides a lot of hope and yeah, optimism for people. Mm. And yeah. And then again, working with this idea of integration of like, once the body knows that that's available, can we work to bring it into our day-to-day. Yeah. Yep. And then the, that's the role of the therapist can be so valuable to remember and remind yourself and believe in that other reality that you experience. Yeah. yeah. I think um, part of depression is that sense that things are always going to be this way mm-hmm. and it feels hopeless. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to even remember or imagine a time where you didn't feel that way or imagine a future where you won't feel this way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so totally, it totally makes sense to me what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was, yeah. Thinking too, like even good psychotherapy acts as a reprieve because mm. I can feel so stuck in my depression. Like you're saying lost, this is never going to change. You get in relationship with a therapist who is like open, spacious, available to you, and you can feel a sense of reprieve. Mm. That alone is medicinal. And then you add in the notion of a ketamine experience, a psychedelic experience. And to me, it's like this two wave experience of like being in relationship and contact and also the blossoming of the psychedelic medicine experience. I'm like what a potent combo. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then you said you haven't worked with cannabis in this way, but some people are. Do you have any insight around that? Not too much. I mean, shout out to medicinal mindfulness. There are a group in Boulder that yeah. they do a lot of cannabis assisted therapy. I have my own like personal aversion to cannabis and I, yeah, like I can get into that if that's helpful, but <laughs> I noticed that I've had a little bit more difficulty with that medicine and the tradition I've been trained like in. Like on a personal level? A personal and just like my experience of like, I don't know if we want to get into this. Sure. No, it's interesting for me. Just the relationship with cannabis and a lot of people I work with, there's like this never ending ambivalence of like, I think it's medicinal, but also it feels compulsive. No, I'm really glad you're saying that. It feels helpful for me to hear that. Yeah. I feel that myself and I've talked with people about it. So. Yeah. And I think it's part of the, the plant. I think it has like a trickstery. It's like <laughs> yeah, sometimes trickster. it acts as medicine and sometimes it acts as like an avoidant right. <laughs> anxiety producing, you know, and like, and I see people get stuck in this like really sticky relationship with cannabis that can be yeah. really hard to suss out and yeah and just to for to do a little self-disclosure like i've been there like for <laughs> yeah, sure totally and i think um i've been thinking about it lately like i think it's good that it's legal i'm not gonna for sure i think that's great and i think i think it can be so medicinal it can be spiritual and then like you're saying it can be sticky or it can be avoidant or it can mm-hmm. be addictive i'm just like in my own experience i never have uh, someone come to me for therapy who says i want to you know use cannabis more often but I hear, yeah. I hear people say, I want to use it less. less yeah, so that yeah. tells you something, right? Yeah. That's some information. Agreed. And, and I've never had anyone say that to me, right? What of like, I would like to just use a little <laughs> bit more cannabis. Yeah. I mean, maybe it sounds silly, but yeah, yeah. but it's, um, no, it's so a lot of people have this back and forth battle. And, uh, I think, um, I think it's part of the trickiness of it is that it can be healing. Like what you just said too. Yeah. It definitely has a medicinal quality and I've experienced it personally as very medicinal. It was actually one of the first substances I worked with as a young person and, Mm. thought it was like immensely helpful and life-changing 
in my adult relationship with it, it's always, I've always felt that like ambivalent, like, is this helpful? Is this not? And then just witnessing how many people get stuck in that. And then again, I worked in the ayahuasca tradition with the Shipibo and they talked about their relationship with that plant and they're like very connected to the plant energies in general. And they talked about like the sticky quality and how often they could feel it as almost like a, like a cloudiness in one's mind and like an unsureness. Mm. Doubt, right? Increase your doubt or uncertainty. Yeah, I think that can be accurate. It puts so much into context for me, and they had strongly advocated not using that personally for me. So I'm like, I'll just stick to that. Yeah. Did you travel down there and live down there? I didn't live down there, but I worked, did some work with Temple the Way of Light, which is an ayahuasca retreat center in Peru outside of Iquitos. Cool. What was was that like? It was great. Yeah. Yeah, it was powerful. (laughs) I mean, I went. I went twice. The first time I went with a partner, and yeah first time working with ayahuasca medicine, which was like really powerful mm. and unbelievable in the terms. Like how long were you down there for? I think we were down there 15 days, did six ceremonies. Oh, see, that's amazing to me. I've never, I've done ayahuasca ceremony, but never that many yeah. in that amount of time. Oh, something happens when you, I mean, it like gets the momentum moving and then by se- ceremony three and four, I just feel like you are so open and available oh. to that medicine. It's unbelievable. And then I went down a second time with a Gabor Mate retreat. Oh, really? Yeah, which again. He's amazing. Like, I saw him speak in uh the 2017 psychedelic con- uh, science nice. conference that I told you I went to. Yeah, yeah he's, he's amazing. Incredible character. So I got to sit in ceremony with him and just witness some of his teachings and oh, wow. to do that in combination with, again, like these indigenous Shipibo healers that have worked with ayahuasca medicine yeah. for eons. It was just such a beautiful combo. Yeah. Beautiful. And so you, you did that and they gave you that advice personally around cannabis, it sounds like. I think it was generally to the group that they, yeah. they have a tough time with cannabis, but... I heard it personally for me. I just like try to receive what feels and it just felt very aligned mm. for me of like, it doesn't feel like my medicine. And mm. yeah. Do they recommend if, if it is something you're using to stop for a period of time before doing ayahuasca? Yeah. That's think, advice that I would Yeah. They typically out. encourage you to do a dieta, which includes like no mind altering substances, at least for two weeks to a month before, before you, you get down there. Yeah. I think that's part of the, the power of the people experience on ceremonies when you do that kind of cleanse beforehand. Agreed. We do weekend intensives with ketamine where people from out of state will come in for a three day kind of deep dive. And I always encourage the clients coming to do at least a week mm. dieta, which is like reducing sugar intake, maybe changing some habitual patterns, trying mm. to sleep well, trying to meditate a little bit, mm. ingesting different types of media. So maybe cleanse re- the palate. Yeah. And like come in like as open and sensitive as you can. So this medicine can really go deep. I think it's such an intelligent, again, I love the idea of like integrating the wisdom traditions of indigenous people that have worked with these medicines for eons and know <laughs> far more than we know, you know, our like Western right. research model thing. Yeah. And then to recognize like people have worked with these medicines for very, very long times and have worked with altered states for a very long time. And they have beautiful suggestions for us. Right. I love and, that. I think yeah. that's absolutely true. And it's good to honor that. And in my opinion or belief like i think that these substances start acting on us in some mysterious way before we take them totally and i felt that myself and i know mm-hmm. other people have and, and i think that's amazing and so that a week or two week preparation period you know whatever that is for you even if you're just thinking about it and having that intention uh definitely increases the power because mm-hmm. we're really talking about the power of our mind right our consciousness that totally somehow these open up doors but i feel like a true psychedelic it's um it's so mysterious you know mm-hmm. what our typical scientific materialist model of like, I'm this body and I take this substance and it has this effect on me. It doesn't work with, with something like LSD or mm. ayahuasca. Like it, it's so unpredictable. 
uh, the effects are so varied mm -hmm. and the experiences are so different. It's just, it's not a one plus one equals two kind Agreed. of. Yeah. Like cannot yeah. be captured by, yeah. Some like reductionist attempt at understanding what's happening <laughs> biologically. You're missing so many pieces, which to me is like the psychological, the spiritual, the emotional, mm. so many layers to these experiences that can't be captured by some reductionist scientific, yeah. you know, like finger pointing, like that's what it is. It's like, good luck. It will be, it will be moving, you know, it's like oil and water. You just can't capture it. Yeah. It's like oil and water. <laughs> yeah. It's a good analogy. It just, it makes me think about our, our whole, um, you know, pharmacy, pharmacological industry and pharmaceuticals. And there's part, I think part of the appeal with psychedelics and things like Michael Pond's book is like, Oh, this person has depression. That's their diagnosis. And here's their um, prescription. And, mm -hmm. and then this will fix you. And there's something about life that doesn't, that doesn't work. It doesn't mm -hmm. fit that. It's never going to quite work. It's never going to be that simple, that easy. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's something that's the difficult thing. So I understand this is kind of like the Trojan horse of how psychedelics are coming back into our mm. mainstream as they're going through the doorway of like research, the scientific <clears throat> model, all these like reductionist forms, which to me, they like, they help because they prove efficacy, which is important. And they get people to understand right you know, the fact that they're actually medicines and like you're saying, like it cannot capture the totality of these experiences. And, and usually I'm like those <laughs> can't models. Predict them, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those models, they just like can't capture a, the depth and breadth of humanity, humans and how complex they are. And then just the same thing with these medicines, like they're way more complex than looking at what serotonin impact mm. and dopamine impact they have. Right. Cause to me, I'm like, they all have other, Markers, spiritual markers, emotional markers. Yeah, something else going on. Yeah. Even if we had the perfect measuring system to measure all the chemicals in our brain and system, that doesn't somehow doesn't tell you what the experience of the other person is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It tells you it's gonna tell you something. It's not like useless, but Yeah. <laughs> Again, for I keep thinking of the Shapibo leaders too. <clears throat> A lot of people get really into like, well, I want a full cup and mm. can I get this dose? And they just keep they're like, it's not it's not how it works. It's mm. not dose dependent. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's like, a good it, message. To it's share. your heart and your receptivity to the medicine. That's going to declare the openness. And like, I just always appreciated that perspective. Yeah. Cause again, like that's such a good microcosm of where we get stuck of like, you know, they didn't give me the full, you <laughs> know, I really want to get my money's worth versus like, just trust. This is a very powerful medicine oh, that will yeah, work with get, you yeah. in the way it's going to work with you and bow in gratitude with the me medicine you've been given and work with what arises. Hmm. Like trust, trust, trust. Yeah, just such, so, such the antithesis attitude. of the Western mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about like not getting your money's worth. And mm -hmm. I love what you just said it's not dose dependent. Yeah, I feel that with ketamine. I mean, a lot of my clients will say this too. We've like moved up to whatever three hundred milligrams, less intense experience. Move back down to two hundred milligrams and have a blast open. And they're like, "How does that work?" I'm like, "It's <laughs> sometimes it's not about the dose. Yeah, it's about us and our openness and our you know yeah so many other variables." Yeah, I've heard um, some people talk to me about that with uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Mm. They're like, I, you know, they've done it often, they've done it a lot, and then they took what they thought was a micro, like a little bit more than a microdose or whatever, and then they had this huge, overwhelming experience when they didn't want it and weren't planning for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of a sudden like, they're in the fall. So the dose, yeah, what you just said is so true. Mm -hmm. It's good information to share. It's good for people to know that. Yeah, I think it is really important. <clears throat> to also, and again, to acknowledge that dose does matter with a lot of stuff. If you take four hits right. of LSD, you're going to feel way different. Right. And if you take half, and that's not always the indicator of your experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's not, it's, it's a both and, it's not yeah. either way.
a lot of dialectic in our conversation today, like a both and. Yeah, there's a lot, yeah. Dose matters, and sometimes dose doesn't matter. And both <laughs> <Yeah>. are true. <laughs> yeah. I just had this memory of this kid I met. I feel kind of felt kind of bad for him, but he was, it was like at this festival, and he, I guess he was like, I don't know, he, he was someone who had done a lot of LSD, and so he was telling me, like, he could take two or three doses and wouldn't even feel it. I'm like, that's not a good place to be <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's curious. <laughs> so, anyway. See, so we were talking about, like, assessing people. Like, when <laughs> yeah. I hear that, when I'm like, tell me about your relationship with LSD, and they tell me, you know, I take three doses before I go to bed and I don't feel much. <laughs> I would get really curious around what well, else. Yeah, is, yeah, I asked him about it. And he what had else been, is going on? He had been taking it so consistently for so long that it had, you know. Was, yeah. So, that... We need to respect these things, right? And, Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Alan Watts had a beautiful quote of like, once you get the message, hang up the phone. Mm. I've always really loved that too. Of like these medicines point to things that are available to us full time in real existence. I really believe that. That's beautiful. And yeah. this notion of like, if you ingest the medicine and it doesn't alter your consciousness as much, you might've actually integrated a lot of what that medicine has to teach you and you can actually let it go. I feel that with cannabis too. Mm. Of like, it's a very potent teacher. And when you get the full message, you can work on integrating it without... Have yeah, you ingest it consistently. Absolutely. Yeah, and talking about cannabis and the trickster quality, I had this. Um, I remember uh, Joe Rogan talking about his podcast because he's kind of gotten, you know, it's kind of. I don't want to sound like a dork, like talking bad about it or whatever. Like mm -hmm. I think part of his popularity is he's enthusiastic about it. Totally. But I've heard him talk about how that paranoia and fear and doubt will come up in him, and he uses that as an opportunity to work with that, to yeah. look at it, to reflect. I think that's great. And yeah. so it's not like. Yeah, I think that's part of that that medicine, for mm -hmm. better or worse. And if yeah, not, agreed. Yeah. And I, I think you point to something really important, which is challenging experiences don't mean they're not good. Right. And there's yeah. a lot of depth and intelligence and wisdom in those experiences. Yeah, if you're willing to show up for them and work with them. Yeah, and I've had my yeah. fair share of like challenging cannabis ceremonies where I'm like, this is the darkest thing I've ever been oh, through. Really? Yeah, my own Yeah, and to just be yeah. like, okay, what is it like to stay with this? Okay. <laughs> what, what is, what am I learning? And, you know, and being super humbled. And I'm like, that is a powerful experience for me. Mm, yeah. The you humbling. Know, yeah. Like, okay. Whew, that's a very strong substance. Super strong. Yeah. It's gotten a lot stronger. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I had these, uh, a little random, but these neighbors who worked in tech and they were, this one guy was like brilliant. Like he, you know, doing all this computer programming on his computer and he's, um, the amount of cannabis that he smoked all day was just like mind blowing. I'm like, how do you do this and function? So mm -hmm. I guess our, our systems can kind of, that tolerance can build up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, that would be, to me, that's an example of not really respecting it, but it worked for him at least for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the question always being like, how sustainable is that long-term and yeah, I don't these know. medicines yeah. have impacts when you take them a lot. Cause I've seen, I mean, I, I do psychedelic integration and there's some people who come to me that are like you know, every other day users of pretty intense psychedelics. Oh, wow. And to me, I'm like that. It can feel sustainable for a while and that starts to take a toll. I almost yeah. think like you end up backlogging all these things that need energy and attention. And right? Yeah. And, and once that gets really heavy, you can start to feel the density in a person. And mm. yeah, to me, I'm like, we, we talk about medicine fasting often, which is like taking a month off of like no altered substances, mm, nice. taking three months off. I mean, just give yourself permission to feel what it's like to not, alter your consciousness. Yeah. And to me, that's when you learn a lot about your healthiness or unhealthiness with relationship to medicines. Mm -hmm. Cause if you make it two days and then you're like, Oh my God, I need, it's like, okay, right. there's something else working here. That's right. not just medicinal use of psychedelics. <laughs> there's something bigger. Yeah. There's a bigger thing working. 
I think that's great advice. And I think um, just having that baseline of what it's like without it and a certain like clarity and strength that can come from making that decision. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to, do I want to do this or not? I can just be clear, like no for right now. And um, yeah, I agree. And it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I talk about psychedelic FOMO. <laughs> a lot of people have this idea of like, oh my God, but there's like two ceremonies this month and like this guy's doing this and I want to really do it. And I'm like, yeah, there's a sense of like losing out. But again, like exploring from what energy does all that come from? Is it like anxiety and compulsiveness? Yeah. And there's a huge shadow in the psychedelic medicine community around like always working on myself, always getting better. And if I have the next experience is going to blow me open even deeper and more Mm. this and more. And like that, again, is therapeutically when I look at addiction, such a big marker, like (laughs) endless pursuit. And like, that's a great, great it's like, what would it be like to just sit steady for a month and to trust that you've done enough work on yourself mm. and to be self-loving to whatever arises for the next month without medicines available. Yeah. And that can be shocking to some people, you know, <laughs> that are on this like endless pursuit. And I'm like, to me, we just need to be very creative with the way we work with ourselves and introduce novelty. And this is addiction 101. If you're on a recip- reciprocal pattern that just keeps moving, the whole idea is to reorient to something new mm. and to feel what's what else is available. And mm. whether you're a drug addict or... We're self-help addicts. You can be addicted to self-help, the next book, the next workshop, the next course. Yeah. Yeah. And the question being like, what if you don't, then what happens? <laughs> and then, yeah, you get to, what if you lot. stop working on yourself for a moment? That's, yeah. that's a good point, especially in a place like Boulder. And, totally. um, but I, I brought up that example of my neighbor from a few years ago, years ago in part, because I've wanted this podcast to have conversations exactly like this, where mm-hmm. we talk about these things in a way that, recognizes some of the downsides and dangers and that also recognizes the benefits and and try to contribute to finding this middle path. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think it's just like a society level dialogue that we need to engage in. And there's Mm -hmm. not answers because um, our society hasn't had this conversation really. We've had the war on drugs, right? We've had the excess in the past and and what's the way forward. Mm -hmm. I would hope that we're in that wave of finding the nuance in the middle ground. Yeah. And then to me, I think about the concept of like gatekeepers. We need people that mm. can witness the too restricted model, the too loose model, and to do like the not too tight, not too loose, and right. to like model what that actually looks like. Because I don't think we've had a lot of models in that category. Yeah. Particularly in the psychedelic yeah. realm, that's not really what we've seen. So, yeah. Well, there's this enthusiasm and inspiration that can come from engaging with psychedelics, which is awesome, but it can, it can lead to that losing a sense of groundedness and mm-hmm. some of what we're talking about. And I think I've heard uh, something interesting about it, that like in traditional cultures, there's this initiation process. Mm. Our culture hasn't really had that, but psychedelics um, for a lot of us play an initiatory role, but we haven't had elders. Maybe this generation is different, but mm-hmm. you know, if you were taking LSD in the sixties, you were having an, an amazing transformative experience that no one, almost no one older than you had ever had. Yeah. And there was this divide between the young and the old. And so I think part of our healing is having elders that we respect mm-hmm. and who don't judge us and who also actually want to help us, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's coming from a place of love, not a place of judgment. Yeah. What a big vacant, <laughs> vacant spot. Yeah. Like yeah, needs, yeah, again, this notion of like wise elder holders finger pointers pointing in the right direction yeah. modeling. Yeah. Like it's such a big piece of that, this world. I think too, I'm like, I've had so many inquiries from parents of like 15, 16, 17 year olds being like, are we allowed to do psychedelic therapy with people this young? I feel like they're mm. in, my son or 
daughter's interested in psychedelics, but Interesting. I would like much rather have them do it in the context of something like this as opposed to, yeah. And I'm like, it's neat that people are even asking these questions. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. But this notion of like, can we hollow out a bigger space for people to explore and examine in a safe? Yeah. Cause my, I'm like my, I had a huge mushroom experience when I was 15 or 16. Wow. No one, you know, it was like me and my twin brother and a friend. And it was mm. just like this big door opening once you open that door, nothing is the same kind of experience. Yeah. But I mean, it's, we were holding it as 16 year olds and you're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. And you know, it's like kind of shame and guilt. Yeah. You keep it quiet and it's like changed your life, but also you can't integrate mm. it too much in. You can't be like, Hey mom, this amazing thing happened. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I mom, feel so much love on, for the little <laughs> Hey mom, I was on psilocybin last night and I saw you as a person for the first time, <laughs> which actually happened to me. I'm like, Beyond the archetype of being my mom, I just saw you as a human and like, whoa, it cracked my heart open. That's beautiful. But I can, you know, it's like, yeah, it's not the culture we lived in at that time where you could bring that forward. But I think we're moving more in that direction, hopefully. I hope so. And I think, uh, to mention it again, Michael Pond's book is really helping. Mm -hmm. I actually gave that book to my parents. <laughs> yeah. It's a great book they give uh, to he's people. He's such a great treader of the path because I think like he's, you know, like respected, professional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so intelligent and clear and, um, yeah. It made me think too, when you just said that, like we have this thing in our culture around, you know, when you're 18, you become an adult, when you're 21, you can drink and it's just kind of bullshit, <laughs> it's just, right? Like it's just this arbitrary number. It makes no sense that 21 is the drinking age to me. It makes, you know, it's just, I think, I think a lot of people are needing this initiatory experience when they're 16, 17, maybe 15. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't think the number, I don't think it's about a number. Me neither. Yeah. There's like an emotional yeah. maturity point where I think it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. This one advocating psychedelics for adolescents is always dicey, <laughs> but I agree. I wrote I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it doesn't even have to be psychedelics, but like an initiation process. Yeah, it's like it's a kind of a separate question. Right, yeah, right of passage. Right of passage yeah. is missing. I wrote an article called "Psychedelics is Right of Right of Passage." Mm, beautiful. And how rare it is that we get an opportunity to transcend out of an old identity mm. and to like leave a bit of ourselves in the past and to pursue something new. And I will always advocate. For my people in recovery, like the 12 step tradition is a rite of passage. Hmm. You like thoroughly explore, you know, and like mitigate all these old identity flaws, if you will. And you can like leave those away. You can pursue a higher power and you can transition into a new identity. And that hmm. to me is like such a beautiful thing. And most people in recovery need to do a rite of passage. Yeah. And That's yeah, like point. it's just so, it's so missing for so many of us. Absolutely. You know, like unless yeah. we've had like a really traumatizing experience and then we feel like we need to do a healing journey, that is a rite of passage in itself. But yeah, for the average bear, no, no high trauma. I think that's where psychedelics can be an interesting form of rite of passage to help us transition out of old identities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And throw you in the new territory. Mm -hmm. I think we can have many of them. Like it doesn't have to be a one-time thing. Um, but just to bring it back around to addictions again, which you just mentioned, I think being addicted, like it's so human. Mm. When I look back at the words of the Buddha from 2,500 years ago, like the original ancient, you know, basic Buddhism 101, he's, he's talking about addiction. You know, totally. he's, he's talking about like holding on to something, be it your self-identity or pleasure or aversion or mm -hmm. it's just, um, so I think, I think taking addiction out of the realm of like, oh, that's those people over there and like looking at yourself. Yeah. Like we all have addiction. We're all on the uh, <laughs> continuum. Yeah. yeah, no, I think we all have the same affliction. It looks different for everybody. And to me, like substance abuse and that level of dependence has a very particular identity to it. And mm. there is something very particular to that specific addiction. And yeah, I think we're all on the scale. 
in some way. I'm like the second noble truth is like the truth of suffering being attachment. I'm like that is addiction. That's addiction. Yeah. yeah. I wrote my master's paper on that of just like, Oh really? That's awesome. Yeah. Because I ran into someone like, do you identify as an addict? I'm like, no, not no. And they're like, well, how can you work with addicts? Mm. And I was like, well, what makes you think you're not an addict? <laughs> you know, like what a presupposition yeah. that we're not all inherently addicted and can't experientially understand what people are going through. Cause from my point of view, mm. yes, there's very specific things with substance abuse that unless you've delved in that path, you're not going to know, mm. but the experiential component of that compulsive subset of what addiction truly is, we're, we all got it. Mm. And yeah. to me, I'm like the deeper you can get it, you know, like attuned with your own attachment and struggle with your own attention and struggle with your emotional impulses, you can sit with anybody and humanize that experience. Mm. So absolutely. Yeah. Did that make sense? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I'm like, yeah, I'm like what you said about Buddhism to me makes a lot of sense. Cause that, the notion of passion, aggression, ignorance, and like that, if you can get yeah. deeply in touch with that in yourself, it doesn't matter what kind of addict sits in front of you. Or, you know, someone who's addicted to exercise, substances, mm. sex, Gambling. Food. Yeah, food. If you're in touch with it in yourself, you will be able to empathize and deeply understand anyone you sit next to. Yeah. And to me, I get really passionate about, yeah. quote unquote, non-addicts understanding like, y- you got it too. <laughs> you know, and you can humanize and understand. Right. We all got it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good point. I think your point about like like self-improvement could could become that or, or be that on some level. and Or even just like ambition, <laughs> career or school or whatever it is you know. your cell phone cell phone my god <laughs> yeah technology oh that was on our list of things that you know i mean that's uh, to me i'm like i was somewhat moving us in that direction <laughs> that to me is the biggest experiential way of understanding what addiction looks and feels like thank you for listening and for tuning in we have part two of this conversation with craig coming up soon in which we discuss social media and the massive impacts that has had on our mental health, you know, I mean, personally and collectively. Um, That was fascinating. So that should be the next episode that comes out. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it. Uh, We have a Patreon account, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. You can also support it by sharing about this on your own social media account or sharing it with friends. Um, Send me a message and become a part of the conversation. You can get more information at estateofmindplay.com. And you can learn more about my work as a therapist, coach, and meditation teacher at estateofmindcounseling.org. Thanks so much, and I will see you here next time.